Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds. Today, I'm joined by Chef J. Trent Harris of Mujo Sushi in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to people who might not know who you are? Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Jordan uh, Trent Harris. I'm a chef now in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we have a restaurant here called Mujo. It's a modern Edamai sushi restaurant uh, doing omakase only. And where were you before Mujo? Uh, before this, uh, I was in New York City for about 15 years. Uh, most recently there, I was working for um, a place called Shuko and uh, Sushi Ginza Oladera. And you, um, you've been kind of in the sushi game for a long time. You trained in Tokyo, and but you've also been trained in Western cuisine. Um, I do want to talk about your experience, but first I would love to rewind back to, you know, just when you were like growing up and just kind of when you knew food was going to be a thing for you? When was it more like, oh, no, I like to eat and more like, oh, I think I might want to do something creatively with this for the rest of my life? Um, you know, I think it was probably when I started actually doing sushi. Uh, I think I'd always cooked a lot growing up and, um, you know, my family cooked a lot. But when I was um, around 18, I was living in Columbus, Ohio which is pretty close actually to um, Eastern Kentucky. You know, most people when they leave Eastern Kentucky and up in Columbus or Cincinnati or Lexington. Um, so I was in um, Columbus, Ohio. And I just got an opportunity to train with, um, you know, with a sushi chef there. And, um, you know, found that there was something about that, that type of food and about food in general that really resonated with me and sort of, um, you know, fulfilled the, uh, um, you know, a lot of uh, needs that I had, um, you know, I always enjoyed, you know, um, design and, and craft and music and, and things like that. And, you know, cooking, you know, I just kind of started to see how this was just sort of a combination of a lot of these different things that I really enjoyed or could be. So I think, you know, from there, kind of seeing, you know, um, food and cooking in a little bit different way, I started to really think about it as more of a, um, a long-term career. And was there anybody in your life that kind of stoked that curiosity for food? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, you know, I cooked with my, my grandmother a lot and you know, my mom, but, you know, I don't necessarily remember thinking, you know, oh, I want to do this as a job. It was just part of, you know, just part of life. And I have a lot of good you know, food memories of that, but, you know, I don't think at the time it, it sort of, you know, inspired me like, um, you know, that this is going to be what I end up doing as a career. Um, but definitely, you know, it, it was um, an important part of my upbringing and like, you know, our, our life for sure. How do you go from Kentucky to, you know, working, not only working, in Tokyo, but being accepted into that culture, which is, I mean, even for the Japanese, you know, it's, it's something that you have to really work hard for to get that respect. And it takes years. And, and not only you not only did that, but you found great success. Um, what was that like for you? How did you get there? Um, you know, I think, you know, like I said, I sort of started out and, you know, trained and 
and learned some fundamentals and enjoyed it. And I think at that point in time, you know, um, to, to really go to the next level of, um, you know, doing fine dining and, and working on technique more at that, you know, at that point in time and, you know, living in Columbus, you kind of had to, to do Western cuisine as well. Um, you know, the type of omakase, the type of, you know, Japanese fine dining that, you know, is sort of available now in this country to really exist at that point in time. So if you wanted to, you know, have access and use better ingredients and, um, I don't want to say necessarily better ingredients, but just learn more, um, you know, I, I started, um, looking into, you know, just all types of other cuisine. So I went to culinary school and then, you know, trained and, French and, um, you know, Western cooking and, and, um, and then just really spent, uh, you know, a number of years just sort of pursuing whatever I found interesting, you know, and that always sort of brought me back to, to sushi. So, you know, I think when I was in New York, you know, as far as getting acceptance into, you know, to working with some of these other great Japanese chefs, um, you know, once they see that you're very serious about it and that you can do the work, and that you're going to, you know, respect it. Um, you know, it was, they're really uh, open about wanting to teach me and sort of share that part of Japanese culture with me. Um, so I think, you know, it's still a lot of hard work and you, you have to put in the time and, you know, show that you're, you're willing to, you know, work the hours and, um, you know, um, willing to, to do it the Japanese way. And, you know, once they see that, um, you know, the chefs that I work for just were very, very open about wanting to share that with me, you know, train and teach me. And, um, you know, I'm very thankful for that. And so uh, at what point do you go to Tokyo and you're there and working, you know, at Ginza? Um, so I was only there for about six months. Um and kind of a little bit under the table and that like I couldn't really get the right work visa to do it. Um, you know, I was working for Sushi Kinzona there in New York. They obviously had their main shop in, in Tokyo. So I think it was important to the, the chef, um, Akifumi Sakagami-san, is his name, that, uh, you know, I have that experience there. Um, so they were able to just kind of uh, allow me to go over and work in that main shop for a while while still sort of, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying this, but still sort of paying me, you know, in New York because there's actually a separate kind of visa requirement in Japan to do um, traditional Japanese food. Um, you know, I had a, enough experience that if I wanted to go there and do uh, American cooking or French cooking or whatever, it would be not an issue to get a visa. But to do traditional Japanese food, you actually have to pass a lot of written exams as well of the language, which I'm just not able to do. Um, you know, I learned uh, a little bit of Japanese working in, you know, I would call it like kitchen Japanese, but yeah, I wouldn't be able to pass any of the, the written exams or anything. So, um, yeah, so that's, you know, sort of how I ended up there. Um, and then, you know, spent about six months there and then went back to, to New York to continue working for the same, uh, one of the same restaurants. Did, did being there change, you know, just or like even level up your relationship to those Japanese ingredients and cooking styles? Was any part of that 
what led you to choosing the style of sushi that you do today? Um, yeah, I think being there definitely, you know, you get a, a different perspective on a lot of the ingredients. Um, and then I think there's also just, you know, an immersion, you know, of being like in the, the culture. You know, the, the restaurants in New York really operated the same as the one in Tokyo as far as like the day-to-day -day in the restaurant. But the clientele is different. The guests are different. Um, you know, the ingredient sourcing is different uh, to a certain extent as far as, you know, some of the more hyper-seasonal items. Um, so, yeah, I think um, being there sort of really, you know, it's also, you know, seeing sort of that um, firsthand and then there's a little bit of like a, um, a validation in a way of like, okay, you know, maybe I can actually do this. Um, or I think maybe earlier in my career, it'd be, more of like, hey, you know, I, I want to do that, but I'm probably not good enough to do it. You know, mm -hmm. I think having that approval from, you know, some of my mentors was, uh, you know, a lot of confidence to be like, okay, you know, maybe I'm able to start trying to think about doing my own thing. So you did feel some sort of kind of imposter syndrome, just not being Japanese and doing this very specific type of food. Oh man, I I still do every day, you know. Um, just in, in general, I think a lot of chefs do, you know, and you know a lot of people do in our society. And I don't know how much of that is because of um, what reasons, but yeah, I mean, I think it's something that um, you know um, I I always struggle with a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I always try to keep in mind that I'm I'm not trying to be Japanese, you know, I'm not trying to do super traditional Japanese. Uh, we're trying to do something that's genuine and respectful of those traditions, but I'm also trying to be honest about who I am and where I am. You know, I don't want, you know, the whole point of the restaurant is not to try to, you know, transport people to Japan. You know, mm -hmm. there's restaurants that do that and do it well, but that's not really my thing to do. You know, I just have to sort of interpret my love for that cuisine in a way that makes sense, you know, for who I am and, and where I am. But definitely, yeah, there's always a little bit of, you know, imposter syndrome where you're like, you know, um, maybe maybe unsure if you're, you know, really at the, you know, the level uh, that you need to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of, I mean, there's been just in covering restaurants as long as I have as, as a restaurant critic before, you know, there was a lot of discussion on who's allowed to cook what cuisine. You know, yeah. and, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just so, it's so blurred. I think anyone should be able to cook. I mean, my family's from Mexico yeah. and obviously Mexicans really run most kitchens. You know, I mean, a Mexican yeah. guy can cook pretty much any cuisine you want him to, but, um, but, you know, I think it's so interesting. And especially just when you were in Japan, you know, you said that the clientele was very similar to that in New York, but I, I find that just have, I've been to Japan a handful of times that the relationship of a Japanese person to their cuisine and to their ingredients is much more different than it is here. Like there's a lot of process, a lot of ritual, a lot of tradition. Um, there's a right way in a lot of ways to, you know, even eat, you know, slurp your udon, you know? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I think in, in Tokyo, as far as the, the kitchen was concerned, it, you know, like it really operated the same as the one in New York, but uh, the clientele was very different. And like you said, there is just such a much deeper connection with, um, you know, in Japanese culture with the, the food there. 
And then, yeah, there is like for a lot of ingredients, a lot of preparations, there's definitely a right and a wrong way to do a lot of things in Japan. And so, yeah, I definitely, um, you know, felt that as well. And it's, it's, it's something I always try to keep in mind when I'm doing what I'm doing is that, you know, obviously we're not going to be exactly like we would in Japan, but I try to just keep in mind that like, am I being respectful to those, those traditions? Is this something that, you know, maybe our, our Japanese clientele will see and understand what we're doing and how we're interpreting it, or would they see it and be like, what the hell is this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's, it can be a little bit tricky, but, you know, fortunately our, you know, Japanese clientele really have embraced what we're doing and really appreciate it, um, you know, for what it is that, you know, I'm an American chef doing, um, you know, edamai sushi and doing, you know, um, something that's pretty faithful interpretation of that. And I think very, you know, respectful of tradition, but doing it in a way that is, you know, also American because I'm an American. So um, how would it not be? You know? mm-hmm. And what, I mean, what is it about Japanese food that, you know, kind of hooked your heart? I mean, why do you like this style so much? I, I love the, the honesty of the cuisine and the simplicity of it in a lot of ways. And, you know, you have these, these layers of, um, layers of both, you know, simplicity and complexity. Um, you know, it's a lot like music, you know, the, the simple things are often the hardest to play because there's, you know, nothing to hide behind. I think that always really resonated with me about this type of food, especially sushi, is that there's a purity in it. You're really focusing on ingredients and technique, and there's, you know, nothing really to hide behind there. There's nothing really to distract from that. You can really focus on, you know, uh, those particular things. And so, you know, I, I always enjoy that. And, you know, that's often the, the kind of, you know, music and film and art that I like as well. Um, something that is, um, you know, simple. Uh, not necessarily minimalist, but, you know, has a certain type of simplicity to it. And, you know, I always enjoy working with my hands as well. You know, I love woodworking. I love playing music. And, you know, those are things that I really enjoyed. So, you know, cooking is... Um, you know, fulfills a little bit of that that need for me too, to be able to actually create something, you know. Um, and the process is, is kind of similar when you're conceptualizing what you're doing. There's a there's an amount of, you know, creativity for sure, but a lot of it is really, you know, craftsmanship about, you know, technique and learning how to, to work with certain ingredients. And I think I actually ate your food when you were cooking, well, not cooking, when you were working at Sugar um in new york a couple of times it it was definitely less traditional but still you know very elegant um i guess it would kind of be at the same time when like omakase was like hitting its peak in new york wouldn't feel like there was like an omakase tasting menu everywhere (laughs) at every sushi restaurant in new york um to the point of cliche but um it it was funkier um what about that you know what about that was appealing to you well, I think, uh, you know, coming out of, I was working for a very traditional um, company and doing very traditional food that was, um, you know, uh, a little more rigid and that, um, you know, everything has to be based on tradition. And, uh, you know, the important thing in that type of um, cuisine is to carry on the tradition. You know, it's not, 
valued necessarily to be innovative or to do things differently or experiment because it's important to carry on the tradition. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Shuko, you know, Nick um, kind of wanted someone to come in and really run the, the sushi bar there. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I, I saw it as a cool opportunity because one, you know, Nick and Jimmy, both those guys are just super talented and, and great guys. And Shuko was such a, a cool restaurant. Um, and it was just an opportunity to sort of experience, you know, their sort of personal interpretation of cuisine. And it's what they do is very much influenced by Masa, you know, where those guys, um, who those guys work for and train under. Um, so yeah, the style of house there is definitely very different than the, um, you know, it's still their restaurant. So when I was there making sushi, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing it to, you know, their sort of standards and their style and, you know, their flavor profiles that they want to have. So it's, it's very different than what, you know, I do here where I'm able to sort of do, you know, my own more personal interpretation of it. Um, but, you know, what I liked about it was that it was, you know, something that was, respectful of tradition but still had a you know its own unique personality and unique vibe and and it was just such a, a cool space to be in as well you know you just um, really felt good when you were in that room so uh, yeah I, I, I really enjoyed uh, my time there it's really cool and then you literally pop up as a pop-up as part of cooks and soldiers you know here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> during the pandemic yeah. Um, you know, not only that, like a high price point pop-up sushi, you know, like thing, like something you yeah. think would not fly and it's sold out. I mean, and, and how does that happen? How do you go from well, like working in the best kitchens and then opening a pop-up in Atlanta? Well, I mean, that's really, that's really Fred, you know, Fred Castellucci, um, you know, he's, he, he and I have been, you know, friends for a number of years and, you know, we had always sort of talked about doing a pop-up together in Atlanta and you know I think our initial vision was to you know build a counter or you know do something and do a pop-up for like two or three weeks just like an actual omakase experience um and we had sort of always toyed with that idea and talked about when the right time would be and we finally put it on the calendar for like March of 2020 which was like the worst possible time so obviously that didn't happen, you know, and it's it's funny, it's funny looking back on it now that, you know, when everything started to shut down in New York and Atlanta, you know, our initial conversations were like, Oh, let's just wait two weeks and see what happens. You know what I mean? Um, Thinking that, you know, maybe we, it would still happen, but it didn't. (laughs) So uh, yeah, if I was in New York, uh, just kind of like everyone else kind of locked down in my apartment and, you know, Fred is, uh, uh, intensely optimistic guy and uh, was like, you know, let's just do takeout. Let's come down. Let's do takeout. Let's see what happens. See how it goes. You know, like we don't really have anything to lose. Right. So, um, you know, it's not necessarily something that I would have done because I just don't, you know, I didn't really know Atlanta or know the the city, you know, I hadn't been here in a long time. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty bold move to be like, all right, I'll, I'll go to a, another city and try this thing out and then see what happens. Um, but, you know, Fred really kind of had a vision for, you know, what, um, what he wanted to offer. And then I was able to sort of, you know, um, have a vision for, you know, what the product could be and how we could deliver that. Um, and, you know, it just kind of clicked, 
together. And, you know, fortunately, I mean, most importantly, people in Atlanta, like, um, you know, appreciated it and responded well to it and, you know, uh, understood and liked what we were doing and were excited about it. So, you know, we just kind of kept doing it. And um, when we started doing the takeout thing, it was the sort of same deal. Like every week we were like, well, should we keep doing this for another week? Should we do it another week? Let's, you know, just kind of day by day, which is what everyone was doing. Um, but then after, you know, a few months of doing that and you know, sort of seeing the response and the, the welcome that we got from people, we started talking about opening something up permanent, you know, which is, again, that's, you know, the thread's optimism. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a much more pragmatic person maybe mm-hmm. where I wouldn't have been like, hey, let's open a, the most expensive restaurant in the city <laughs> and do fine dining, like in the middle of the pandemic. But, you know, Fred, Fred was like, I, I think it's going to work. Let's do it. I'm trying to come up with a better word, but it's, it was just such a ballsy move. And it wasn't just, I mean, it just wasn't like expensive. (laughs) You were like doing caviar, Alaskan king crab supplements, you know, like it was like nigiri with really interesting fish. It wasn't just like your basic tunas, you know what I mean? It was, it it was, you know, uh, it was aspirational. we were buying the same, you know, and using the same sort of fish vendors that I use in New York, you know, uh, I was having them fly stuff into me directly and going and picking it up at the airport. And, um, you know, there's sort of an expression, uh, you know, I'm not really a sports guy, but there's a, an expression in hockey is um, to, to pull the goalie, which is essentially, you know, if you're down in the last sort of quarter and you need to make that final shot to score, you pull the goalie, you know, no defense, put another offensive player on the team and just go for it. And I think that's kind of what Fred and I were doing. It's just like, all right, well, it's either, you know, make it or there's no other option. So let's just pull the goalie and go for it. You know, let's just do it. So, um, yeah, and I, I, I probably wouldn't have the confidence to do it without, without him, you know, kind of believing in it. So, um, we were very, and then again, just very fortunate that people appreciated it because it could have easily, you know, I could have easily seen people being like, Hey, you know, there's all this going on in the world. Like, uh, nobody cares about this. You know, like, well, I don't want caviar right now. I don't want this. Um, you know, but you know, on the other hand, I guess it's something that sort of people needed at the time, which just like a little little bit of joy, maybe, you know, just something fun and something different. So you're listening to the food that binds with Jennifer Zeman and chef Jay Trent Harris of Mujo Sushi in Atlanta, Georgia. But it was also, um, um, elegance, you know, like there was a bit of, it was, there was a bit of elegance that like, you know, I mean, somebody like myself, I'm a trained chef, like dine out for a living as a critic. And like, then I'm like grounded at home cooking every single meal. And like, I like, when I go out, I like to eat things I can't make for myself. And yeah. your food is something I can't make for myself ever. There's no way I could aspire to do so. And, and it wasn't well, just the food. <laughs> it wasn't, it just, it just wasn't that it wasn't just the food though. It was the packaging. Can you discuss like everything down to the soy sauce dispenser oh. with the, you know, with the little dish, it, it, it was elegant yeah. and it made me feel it was like, I didn't think that you could possibly translate the Imakase hospitality to my home, but somehow you did. Um, well, yeah, I think that, you know, the way that you put it right there is perfect is that's exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted, 
people to also, you know, because what people were missing is, you know, the hospitality and that connection with someone. So, um, yeah, we can deliver food, but how do you deliver like hospitality and that, that feeling? And so that's kind of what we try to do with the packaging and the little thoughtful touches is that, yeah, little things to show that like, you know, we're, we're thinking about you and we want you to really experience this and, you know, enjoy it and, and have a little moment of, of joy in, in what, you know, everything that's going on in the world. So, yeah, we really sort of um, approached it that way. It's like, you know, what, you know, thinking about just, just like we would with the dine-in service, like what are all the, the points that people are going to be interacting with this and how can we make it, you know, special for them? Or how can we make it a little nicer? Um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, regular takeout. Um, it's just that, like, you know, we wanted to just add a little more elegance to it and a little more, like, you know, humanity, hospitality touch to it so that you could sort of feel that um, when you got the package because we mm -hmm. weren't able to deliver that in person. Yeah. And there's um, also a certain amount of faith for you because, I mean, like, sushi, the rice temperature needs to be right. The fish needs to be the right temperature, like, yeah. for optimal enjoyment, right? So, I mean, that was, yeah. again, I mean, courageous. If we, if, if we weren't, if it wasn't COVID, I mean, if we would have had any other option, I would never have done takeout. You yeah. know, I was always the person who was like, I won't do sushi takeout because it's just, you know, for that style of sushi and what, you know, those things, it's just not the same, you know? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, for sure, you know, we also wanted to try to make sure that we were delivering like the best possible, you know, experience and product and, you know, like, we would be, you know, I would be sort of making these boxes to order, you know, instead of, you know, another type of thing where we knew how many orders we would have, you could just sort of, you know, set it up ahead of time and then just have somebody come and deliver them. Like we were kind of running it like really close to the line because I wanted to be making it, you know, um, as close to when they're eating it as possible, which actually made it a lot more difficult, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to, to work that timing out with like the delivery drivers and everything. And, I, but yeah, we were really trying to do that, that it's like, well, if we have to do takeout, let's, um, let's try to make sure that, you know, if they're, if I can get that rice to them, you know, if they can get that takeout within you know, 30 minutes of what I make it and the rice is still warm and, you know, um, you know, that, that was sort of the goal is like to try to make that takeout sushi as, you know, as best as we could. Um, and, uh, you know, we thought initially we might keep doing takeout, you know, when we were planning on opening that restaurant, we weren't really sure. You know, we were kind of like, didn't know, you know, like everyone at that time, nobody really knew if that's like, is this, are we only going to be doing takeout forever? Like, are we ever going to dine in again? So yeah, there was a, a little bit of maybe, you know, professional pride as well. Like, well, if I'm going to be doing takeout, then I'm just going to do the shit out of this and try to make it as good as possible. Yeah. But then you did open the restaurant and what's really wild just from an outsider's point of view is not only did you open the most taste, the most expensive tasting menu in Atlanta um, and the most expensive omakase tasting menu in Atlanta, it spurred a bunch of other offshoots, which became like a tidal wave of omakase restaurants <laughs> on the West side yeah. and in that area. And I mean, I really thought that I thought this style of dining was done after COVID because yeah. I mean, you're face to face, right? So right. not only did you bet on that, but then you open this and I mean, listen, you guys are still booked. 
right? I mean, your talk goes out and it gets yeah. it gets swiped out in like seconds. It's wild. Yeah, we're we're very we're we're really lucky that yeah, we just we just released our um May reservations and they're fully sold out uh already on the you know April first. And we continue to do that every month. So I mean that's just um you know we're grateful for that because you know we have that response from you know the people of Atlanta that really you know enjoy what we're doing and enjoy the you know the type of hospitality that we're we're giving and that they you know want to be there. Um to me that's like the, the biggest thing which you know means more to me than you know, Michelin stars or whatever. It's just that, you know, people want to come back to that restaurant and have a good time with you. And, um, you know, uh, that's the most important thing for me. So, yeah, we're, we're just incredibly fortunate. And um, I've been really, um, you know, just um, amazed at, you know, the, the demand that we've had uh, far exceeded my um, my expectations, for sure. I mean, can you talk about your restaurant? Because if many people don't know, it's 15 seats. Yeah, we, we're, a, we're a small omakase only uh, restaurant. We have 15 seats at the, the sushi bar, um, as well as a small six seat cocktail bar that's just open to guests who have a reservation and dine with us for the evening. And um, we recently opened a small private dining room as well that seats six people. So and that's a, a fully separate sushi bar. Um, um, you know, there's a chef in there, you know, preparing um, everything for those six guests as well. Um, so the same sort of experience that you have at the, the main counter of having a, a, everything made one by one, uh, but just maybe a little, little more privacy, a little more intimate, uh, which is um, funny because the restaurant's already very small. So intimate. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> how do you book the uh, private room? This is the new thing. How do you get the private room? Uh, Right now, you can either uh, email our, our maitre d' or, um, you know, uh, which you can you know, email through uh, com, Or if you go on Resi and select that you have six guests, it'll show you availability for that private room. Because we, we only seat it for parties of five or six. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's, um, I, I would say it's, you know, it's a similar menu, but sometimes there's other little things that, you know, we serve in the private room that we don't necessarily have in quantities enough to serve in the main bar for the day. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it'll be a similar, similar menu to what we're serving in the main uh, area. It's just a little more uh, private. And, um, and then, yeah, so the 15 seats at the main sushi bar, we essentially do um, two seatings. So we'll do 30 people a night in the, in the main sushi bar and then one seating in the, in the private room of six people. So maximum of 36 people every day. And it is like soup to nuts, like a fine dining experience. I mean, there, there's someone, you know, behind you, your, 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 you know, board gets wiped in between each piece of nigiri. Um, you know, even the, even the wood of the, of the tent. Didn't, I think you told Christian and I, when we were eating there that, that you sanded every night, I think, or, or um, something like that. We sand it every day. Yeah. Every day. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every night we scrub it down. And then once it dries in the morning, we sand it all down again. Why? Um, one, it just feels nice. It just feels good. You know, um, it has a warmth to it. And it's, um, you know, there's sort of um, something that you can't really replicate uh, that feeling unless, you know, you just have a, a piece of cypress that's just hand sanded every day. It has like a warmth and a character to it that you don't get. 
And I think it's, um, you know, for me, it's, it's a little nod to tradition and that that's a very traditional sort of setup for the sushi bar in, in Japan would be traditionally made of hinoki and edamai sushi. So we use American cypress here instead of Japanese cypress. Um, and uh, ultimately, it was just like, you know, thinking about all those little touch points of when the guest is interacting with us and, you know, when they're experiencing our hospitality, is it like, well, why don't we, you know, if we can make this counter more comfortable and make that a good experience too, why not do it? You know, instead of having it um, just uh, sealed with polyurethane or something, um, it's a little more work to sand it every day, but um, it's a nice um, it's a nice touch for people. And I think, um, you know, it's something that sounds strange to people sometimes, but once they sit and sort of feel the warmth of that counter, you know, it really does. We couldn't stop a... running our hands over yeah. it during the time. Yeah. Like, and, and just, yeah. I was, I remembering earlier when you were saying that yeah. one of the things that appealed to you about Japanese food was that you love to touch it so much. I just, yeah. I feel like your hands are all over the restaurant, but in a very chic and minimalist way. Can you talk about why you chose this style of sushi and and how this restaurant is your interpretation of this cuisine you love so yeah. much I, I mean a big part of why I, I you know chose this style of sushi is that i think it's delicious i mean i think you know it's really all about bringing out umami and bringing out the flavor of these natural ingredients could, could you explain and, it for people who don't know this type of sushi how it's made sure. yeah yeah, so what we do is a version of what's called Edomai Sushi. Edomai, Edo is the old name for Tokyo, and Mai means in front of. So it literally means like Tokyo Bay or in front of Tokyo. So Edomai Sushi is the traditional style of sushi that developed, you know, during the Edo period in Japan, um, you know, would have been in the 1800s. And, um, you know, we, we do sort of a modern interpretation of that. And so a lot of the techniques of uh, preparing this are really based on preservation. There's a lot of salting, a lot of curing, a lot of aging of fish. Some items are cooked to be preserved. Um, so, you know, there's a perception among some people that when it comes to sushi, that everything needs to be fresh, 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 which is the opposite of what we do really. You know, we're about um, taking those, those fish and those ingredients and looking at how do we draw out the most flavor from this and the best texture from this and the most umami, you know, that sort of, um, I, I don't really know how to define umami, just that sort of taste sensation of, you know, satiety, you know, um, and drawing out the most umami in those ingredients. And then, you know, uh, the way that we season the rice as well as different, we use uh, akaju, which is a, an older style of vinegar. Um, which at the in the Edo period would have been much cheaper as uh, akazu is made from sake leaves, made from the sake pasu, that's then uh, you know aged for three to five years. So it turns a really dark brown color. There's sort of a mired reaction happening where um, um, you know that's uh, creating all these other flavor compounds in there, and then it's mixed with water and re fermented into a vinegar. Uh, at that period of time, it was a cheaper you know, form of vinegar because it's a byproduct of sake making and rice was very expensive. Uh, nowadays, it costs way more and it's a, a lot harder to get. So that's something we have to sort of import ourselves to have a, a steady supply. Of. But I think it really makes a, a big difference. So, so our style of sushi is really based on that, you know, old school, traditional Tokyo style sushi, you know, and we just do nigiri sushi, uh, nigiri meaning the grip sushi. 
Um, we don't do rolls. Um, you know, we don't do um, other types of sushi that people may be a little more familiar with in, in some other Japanese restaurants in America. Um, you know, we just really focus on that classic edomai style. It's just really focused on the giri. Um, so, I, I don't know. Did I answer the question? I started yeah, rambling. Yeah, it did. No, no, no. That's a perfect explanation because <laughs> yeah. I, you really are the only person doing edomai sushi in Atlanta. And, and, and you really can't, I mean, I do believe that you have the best sushi rice in Atlanta. So it makes sense that it's, oh, that vinegar you. is the vinegar always makes a big difference. Right. And, and the yeah. sweetness and obviously the temperature, but, um, I also, your, your sushi is also just a touch smaller than some people, you know, which I uh, appreciate, you know, because mm -hmm. when you're sitting down to an omakase meal, it can be a lot. Um, yeah. why do you err on this, on that side? So, you know, the, the size of nigiri has really transformed over, you know, the, the years um, pretty dramatically. And, you know, sushi, edamai sushi really started out as street food. It was something you would get from a street party. And the nigiri were much bigger, you know. Um, um, and then gradually, you know, um, especially after World War II, the size got a lot smaller. And some of that had to do with rice rationing. It was like, all right, this many pieces from this one go of rice, which is, uh, you know, the Japanese kind of traditional measurement. Mm -hmm. Whenever you have that little box in, you know, a restaurant, you know, that the sake is served out of, that's one go. And that was traditionally used to measure rice um, or sake or whatever. So it's basically like a cup, you know, the Japanese version of a cup. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, so the, the style that we do is, um, you know, uh, I'd say we, we serve about 10 to 12 grams of rice with each nigiri um, because, one, you know, we are serving a lot more pieces. Um, maybe traditionally in like an a la carte or an okonomi style um, or like an as-you-like-it style edamai sushi, uh, be closer to 20 grams of rice. But, uh, you know, we just feel that it's a little too large um, to be eating that many pieces of for most people. Um, and also, my hands aren't that big. So that's part of it, too. <laughs> Sometimes you get yeah. these really big slabs of fish yeah. now, too, that are, like, draped. I mean, it's, like, almost intense, yeah. you know? Um, I feel like the and, fish is eating me back. Yeah, and we're, we're you know, I think it, it balances well at that size, too, with, the you know, the right amount of fish, the right amount of rice. It's really truly one bite because some of the larger ones for me you know it's supposed to be one bite but it's like it can be hard for me sometimes when with a larger nigiri like that one bite takes me a long time to, to chew through so i just feel like it's just a more pleasant you know style uh, or size and you know it's not uncommon the, the, the size that we do is pretty common in, you know in japan as well for like an uh, omakase style restaurant so if people haven't been i mean Mujo is kind of nondescript on the side, you know, of of cooks and soldiers. A lot of people don't know it's there. I'm actually taking my husband because he hasn't been because I haven't taken him. Oh, <laughs> finally, so I'm like, finally, I'm like, oh, there it is. But um, <laughs> but if if people haven't been, what can they expect when they come? I mean, they're paying this. It is one of the most expensive meals in Atlanta, which honestly, if you're listening, yeah. I think it's the best meal you can pay for in Atlanta, not just sushi. Oh, like it you. is the best restaurant right now in Atlanta. What are people in for? For what is it? Two seventy five, two ninety five? No, it's two twenty five a person. Two twenty five per person. Sorry. Two twenty five a person plus you know plus tip and beverage. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'd say you know you'll you'll spend a little more than that, but that's the cost of the omakase. Mm -hmm. 
We also offer some supplemental courses, things that we get in limited quantity that maybe we don't have uh, enough to serve for the whole menu or things that are maybe a little more expensive where if we serve that on the main menu, it would drive the price up really high and not everybody wants that thing. So we just offered a supplemental item. Um, so there are some of those things available. Sometimes it's, um, you know, uh, Kegani, like hairy crab, or uh, right now we're doing Potarika, firefly squid. Uh, we have Ankima, uh, monkfish liver, uh, awabi, Kuro um, awabi, which is a black abalone. Um, so, you know, it just depends on what's what's in season and, and also what we're getting and, and good quality from our, uh, you know, uh, fish brokers in Tokyo. Um, so, yeah, it starts out at, at, at that price at $225. Um, but when you come in, you know, we really wanted it to, you know, feel like you're, you know, entering, um, you know, maybe, maybe the cliche to be like you're entering our home, but, uh, you know, maybe like you're at a dinner party. And so like when you when you walk in the door, you're greeted by, you know, our maitre d' manager. We don't have a host, you know. Um, that person greets you often by name. Um, um, we have a small cocktail bar, so there's a place for, you know, for guests to, uh, you know, wait, arrive a little bit early, have a drink while they're waiting for their table. Um, and then, you know, from there, we just really try to, to offer the best hospitality that, you know, is, uh, that we can possibly do, you know, um, you know, from there you're, you're seated at the counter, um, you know, we, we sort of begin the meal with um, usually a sakizuke or an amuse-bouche, um, a small bite to get them started. And then we have um, a selection of three sensai or sort of small plates uh, before we move into sushi. Uh, we do 10 pieces of nigiri uh, miso soup that we, we make, which is really awesome. Um, and then uh, atsuyaki tamago, shrimp and egg cake is a very traditional end of the sushi progression. And then we also, because, you know, we're uh, Americans, um, you know, we, we end with a little little dessert, like a little ice cream sundae. Um, and, you know, dessert like that is not very traditional in um, traditional Edamai sushi restaurants, but we like ice cream. So, you know, we end with ice cream. Um, I think it was an interesting flavor, too, last time. I think it was... Uh, Lately, miso we've been doing uh, right now it's roasted sesame with uh, miso rum caramel mm -hmm. and some Japanese sweet potatoes, and then uh, some oh, yes, the sweet potato that's what it was yeah. the sweet potato. So, you know, it's kind of actually the flavors of that is kind of like warabi mochi, it's like sort of this mochi that's tossed in um, soybean flour, and then you eat it with like a uh, brown sugar syrup. So, it's sort of supposed to evoke a little bit of that flavor, but you know, it's basically an ice cream sundae. You know, and then, you know, also when we were putting this together, you know, we didn't want this to feel like a pretentious or like a, a place, you know, I, ne I never want someone to come in and be dining and feel uncomfortable, like they don't belong there. And I've had that experience in a lot of really high end fine dining places mm -hmm. where I'm like, um, I don't know if I belong in this restaurant or I don't feel welcome or for whatever reason, you know, um, and so we really wanted to have that. And I'm not trying to necessarily with the food. We're just, we're just trying to make things that are going to bring joy to people that mm -hmm. they're going to enjoy eating and it's going to taste great and they're going to have a good time and be very comfortable. Uh, and I think that's really what it's about. It's like delivering kind of that type of hospitality and trying to find a way that we can do it where it's still, 
you know, it's still elevated and we're still, um, you know, doing fine dining, but it's really all about comfort and, you know, enjoying the experience and very removing any barriers or any sort of, um, you know, things that might be intimidating for, for maybe people who aren't accustomed to that style of sushi as well. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't feel intimidating and it doesn't feel snobby at all, but it's a really... I don't know. Like I just, when I sit down at that sushi bar and I look around, it's like such a mix of Atlantans, which I also really love. Really like yeah. it's like a really great mix of vibes, but I mean, I think you're, you're doing a great job and, and it does feel very comfortable. And, 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 and one of the last questions I'll ask you, which I always ask everyone is just speaking of comfort. Um, if mm-hmm. you're going to cook yourself something for comfort, what is that? Oh man. I, you know, this, this is one of the reasons I love being back in the South. You know, I grew up in Kentucky, so my ultimate comfort food is like biscuits and gravy. You know, that's like what my grandma always made for me. And so, yeah, that's like, to me, like ultimate comfort food, biscuits and gravy. And maybe maybe fried chicken is like a close second. But um, yeah, if I'm going to do something at home, if I just want to make myself something that's like really comforting, um, you know, but probably biscuits and gravy for sure. Nice. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you're super busy and I'm glad we finally got to sit down and do this. And I really yeah, appreciate I'm really it. Glad. Yeah. yeah. We'll look, look forward to seeing you again at the restaurant. And we're really happy to have you in town. The restaurant's amazing. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, that's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Chef Harris for joining us. If you want to keep up with me, you can follow me on social as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds. If you like the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, or tell a friend. Next week, we'll be joined by Rachel and Peter Kylie of Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia. Again, we'll be back next Sunday with Peter and Rachel Kylie of Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia. This has been Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds. Thanks for listening.